don't know this, I don't really watch basketball. And so, but we're going to talk about joy tonight. And right now the Elite Eight just happened. And now the Final Four is now set in stone. And so if you were a Texas Tech fan, you have a ton of joy because you just overcame a bunch of odds to make it to the Final Four. And there's three other teams, in case I don't want to spoil anything, but three other teams have made the Final Four. Now they are experiencing a lot of joy. But I don't think that joy really comes close to the joy that I got to witness through a video my friend sent me. He was at a, a, a volleyball game for his high school daughter, and as they were calling up the starting lineup, one girl, uh, they called her name, she stepped up and raised her hand, it's kind of what they do, and all of a sudden the crowd starts to cheer a little louder for her, and a little longer for her. And they, she sees from the crowd people kind of pointing behind her back, and so she's really confused, and she turns around and she sees her dad. But it's not just her dad, it's her dad in his military fatigues walking towards her because now everybody gets it. This father was deployed and he decided to surprise his daughter by coming home early and coming to her game. And I hope you're kind of familiar of seeing these videos on YouTube where the the family member who's in the military comes home early, comes to a son's or daughter or husband or wife's birthday or to a sporting event and surprises them and to see the joy on their faces and their expressions of joy. And that young high school girl ran up to her dad and jumped into his arms and everybody in the stands cried with joy. But let's kind of flip that a little bit. Imagine someone maybe that you know, that may be close to you, a close friend or a close family member, they commit a crime, a horrendous crime that they have to go to prison now for many, many, many years, maybe decades And maybe this person recognizes that even though I committed this crime, I deserve, I'm guilty. I won't even try to hide it. I'm guilty. I deserve to go to prison. But embarrasses you and your family. And so while they're serving their time, they don't complain about it. They're like, no, I deserve this. And when they serve their sentence, they say decades later, they come out maybe hoping someone will remember them. But instead they walk out of those prison gates and there's no one because their family has abandoned them, even though they've changed, even though they were asking for forgiveness and said, I'm a different person, please forgive me. No one came. No one was really joyful for that person. So that's what kind of what we get in this, this parable, uh, the third parable that Jesus shares to the, the people around, these, these tax collectors, these sinners, the Pharisees and scribes. They get a story about a father and his two sons and how one son asks for his inheritance early, takes that inheritance inheritance, and squanders it away. And how he realizes that he wronged his father, comes back, asks for forgiveness, receives it from his father, but the older brother refuses to forgive him. Maybe some of us in this room might feel like that criminal. Like, you know, I am sitting here. I don't know why I'm here. I might be at a low or maybe someone keeps bringing me here to third nine. And you know, I just, I sin too much. I can't be forgiven. Even though I, I would like it, I just can't. I don't think God would want me in his family, but that's not true. And then maybe in here, we have people who have had that younger brother experience where someone has sinned or wronged them or their family Even though this person's asking for forgiveness, they decide, I can't forgive you. I don't want you back in my family. So tonight, we need to see what does God want. God wants to, he's willing and desiring for us to, uh, to forgive us. 
and to rejoice with him when anybody gets saved and anybody repents. So let's turn to Luke 15, Luke chapter 15, verse 11. And to give a little bit of context as you're turning there, um, as Kellen broke down two weeks ago, it's about two parables, a parable about a lost sheep and a lost coin, and how the owner of the sheep and the owner of the coin were so joyful when they found the thing that was lost. And so in Luke 15, we have another parable about someone having joy about finding someone who was lost. And so follow along with me in verse 11. And he, this is Jesus, and Jesus said, there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he, the father, the father divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far country. There he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. What Jesus is trying to share, and what this people would, the audience would have understood, is that this younger son deserved the low that he's in. It stall starts in verse 12 when he says, give me the share of the property. What he's telling his dad is, you're dead. I don't want you alive. Give me the inheritance that's due to me. So can you just hurry up and die and just give it to me, okay? He wants the father's presence, but he doesn't want him to be in the father's presence. He wants the gifts the father can provide, but doesn't want a relationship with his dad. He doesn't want the potential privilege of having a relationship with his father, but instead he's choosing a life of self-indulgence. And that's what happens in verse 13. He squanders his property. How much? The audience kind of would have understood how much this was. But to break it down, that in Levitical law, the older brother is supposed to get double portion of what the siblings get. And so since there's only one sibling, the older son would have gotten two-thirds of the father's uh, property, while the younger son would have gotten one-third. So imagine a, sem- a pretty wealthy family and the younger son taking a third, a one-third of the wealth, driving to Las Vegas four hours away, going to the nearest club, to the nearest casino, and dropping it all. He had a temporary good time, but he's just threw it all away in no time. And that's what prodigal means. It it means lacking restraint, indulgent. And as a result of his behavior, of his decisions that he made, it brings him to a low, a famine. Something out of his control hits. And because of his lack of self-control, he becomes, he has nothing. And as a result, he hires himself out. Not only that, he has to go to such a low that he has to feed pigs. And the audience, who is a Jewish audience, would have understood that this is supposed to be the lowest of lows. So imagine you get to a point to where the only job you can have is to go waist deep deep in human filth. And that's the only job you can have. And you're longing for anything else. He defiled himself because of his, his, his choices. It wasn't a string of bad luck. This is the result. This is the consequences of his sin. This is what he deserves. He deserves a, a separation from his father. And so this drives us to our first point. Our first point today is repent from your own prodigal life. Repent from your own prodigal life. 
Sometimes we don't think we deserve the consequences of our sin, but the best illustrate this is maybe a question you may have, present, have been presented in college. You might have a professor or a student or someone present this, maybe trying to figure out your own faith. Is The question is, why did God wipe out innocent people during the flood? Why did God, according to your Bible, wipe out the entire world and save one family? That doesn't seem very fair. Wasn't there a lot of innocent people? But they're trying to explain something from the past without using the full Bible because the full Bible, it says in Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 and 2 and verse 5, that man's heart was intent on doing evil. They were so vile. They were so violent. They were so sexually immoral. They were so low. They were so prodigal that God even regretted making man. But he even showed grace to them. How? Second Peter chapter 2 verse 5 talks about Noah. Yeah, he built an ark, but what did he do? It's described he was a preacher of righteousness for a hundred years. So the people of that world had a hundred years. They were warned, what you're doing is wrong. You have a chance to escape, and yet they didn't. They wanted to stay in their lifestyle. So an event out of their control happened. They were exercised for, the, they were exercised for their sin. They deserved what they had. And sometimes it's not comfortable, but we also deserve the punishment for our sins. Romans chapter 1, verses 18 to 32, talks, Paul talks about this. How when we sin, we're, in reality, we're just rejecting God. We know God exists. Maybe we see his nature. We see his creation. We have a conscience. We know things are wrong. We know things are right, but we choose wrong anyway. Because why? Because we want to suppress the truth. We want that temporal satisfaction over knowing that God has something more for us. And so therefore, we are without excuse. Even though we know God, we suppress him. We don't honor him as God or give thanks. We become futile in our thinking. We decide to go indulge in our sin. But it continues because we want to do that. What does God do? What did the father do to the younger son? He wanted his inheritance. So what does the father do? He gives it to him. That's what verse 24 of Romans 1 says. It says, Therefore God gave them up into the lust of their hearts and to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than creator. That's what we do when we sin. We don't choose God. We choose the thing that God created and we worship that instead. And being prodigal doesn't, doesn't mean just being going after the prostitutes, being going after the drinking and the partying. No, Paul breaks this down in verse 29 of Romans 1. It's having covetousness, malice, envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness, being a gossiper, being a slanderer, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, and ruthless. You and I, we need to see that we live a prodigal lifestyle that we need to turn from. And sometimes we feel like we're trapped. Maybe we feel like we're trapped in our coveting. We have our social media. We scroll through Instagram and we get jealous. We want where people are going. They're traveling over Europe and Asia. We're we're jealous of the colleges our friends are going to and maybe the careers that they're at. Maybe we lie. We lie about our homework. We copy someone else's work. We cheat on our tests. Maybe we fudge our time cards. We say, you know, I was here at work at 8, but in reality it was 8.05, 8.15, 8.30, 9 o'clock. So therefore we're stealing. We're stealing through, for, from our employers. We, maybe we're stealing through our group project where we don't really want to work because we're tired, we're, we're busy. I don't have, to ha- have time to do this group project for school. So I'll let the other group do it. And I'll receive the grade that I don't deserve. 
Maybe we, we just commit adultery when we're, if we're prodigal and indulgent in our porn or the, the thoughts of our mind or the sexual thoughts about another person's flesh. Maybe we indulge ourselves in our hate for our professors that we don't agree with, the ones that bring the pop quizzes all the time. Maybe for that employer who keeps asking you to work an extra day. Maybe it's that slacker in that group that doesn't do their work. And we're indulgent in our slander. We are gossiping about other people's sin and what other people do. And then also we, we, we're indulgent in our idolatry. We worship the college we hope to get into or the job that we hope to have or the marriage we hope to be in or just over our future. We indulge in it. In verse 32 of Romans 1, Paul just, I think, hits the nail in the coffin because it tells us that even though we know the God's righteous, righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, that we know we deserve the consequences for our cheating, our lying. We know we should get caught. We know that when we steal, we should get caught. But guess what? What do we do? We only don't do them. We give approval to those who do them. We join in in the slandering. We join in in the adultery. We join in worshiping our potential future. But the thing is that there is hope. Praise God that there is hope. Where's the hope? We have to go back to Luke 15 and verse 17 because the hope begins in that verse in verse 17. But when he came to himself, when the younger son came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father. And I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servant, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Why does the hope begin in verse 17? It's that self-realization that the son had. A self-realization that I think is best described in Matthew chapter 5, verses 3 and 6. Matthew, Matthew chapter 5, verses 3 and 6, it says, Blessed are the poor in spirit. The son was poor in spirit. He was aware of his utter spiritual bankruptcy apart from his father. He was blessed are the morning. He was mournful over his sin. He recognized what he did finally. Blessed are the meek. He was finally in control. He was no longer reckless. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. The son desired to be with his father again. But also the hope begins with when the son says, I am no longer to be, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. He has a proper perspective. He recognizes his sin and the consequences of it invalidates him from his father's company. In verse 18, it says heaven before the father. He recognizes sin against God before his father. God created his father. God told him to honor his father. God gave the wealth to his father. But instead, he wanted to take the wealth in his own hands and dishonored his father and didn't want to be with his father. And he recognized, no, I sinned against God and I sinned against my father. He recognized I could bring nothing to the table. Hire me as one of your servants. 
That's the mercy he thought he deserved. Well, hopefully gains, not deserved. He doesn't, God, just help, Father, just help me to be a servant. And so this is what 2 Corinthians chapter 7 describes as a godly grief. Hope begins with a godly grief, a godly sorrow, knowing that you sin against a holy God, that you sin against other people. But having a gospel faith, the son recognized that only the holy faith is that the father can only save him. And having a genuine change, the son got up and left. That's where it begins. But this is where it gets crazy. In verse 20, the father saw him and had compassion. I know we might be, I hope, I know that we're familiar with this passage, but think about it. The father had every right to discipline his son. The father had every right to punish his son. The father had every right to reject his son. And you and I would have said, that is just. That is right. But what does the father do? He has compassion for him. He's, he's been searching for his son. He saw him from a long way off. And what does he do? He runs towards him. He looks foolish. He looks foolish in his compassion. And that's what the world sees to us. God doesn't deserve to save us if we sin that bad. But God wants to forgive. And not only that, he wants to celebrate. He kills the fattened calf. That fattened calf was, is, was reserved for guests of honor. So imagine if you just horrifically dishonor your parents. You ask for genuine forgiveness. And then you know what? Invite your friends. We're going to invite all the family. We're going to invite all our neighbors. We're going to Mastro's on me. I'm paying the bill. I'm so excited that you're back. We're going to Mastro's. And not only that, the father gives the son a robe, a ring, and some shoes, a robe for the guest of honor, a ring, a sign of authority and sonship and shoes that he's no longer a servant. He's fully restored. He He didn't ask for that. He asked to be a servant. But the father showed him, he's like, you are now my son again. But why? Why does the father do this? In verse 24, the father has love. He understands that his son was dead and now is alive. He was lost and now he is found. That's what verse 1 of Luke 15, when the tax collectors and sinners, they're understanding that they horrifically sin against God and they're seeking Jesus for forgiveness. So in point number two, when you need to rejoice over God's compassion for you, rejoice over God's compassion for you, Louis Zapparini, he understood that. If you don't know who Louis Zapparini is, he was a runner. He got, he got to run for USC. He got to run in the Olympics. But the Olympics he ran was, was in 1936, which a few years later, World War II began. And as World War II had began, he joined the Army Air Corps in 1941. But in 1943, as him and his crew were flying over the Pacific, he was shot down. And of the 11 crewmen, crewmen, only three survived the crash. And for 47 days, they were stranded in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, begging for salvation. And they thought it came. A ship finally found them. But turned out to be an Imperial Japan warship. Instead of being saved, they were captured. And for over two years, they were prisoners of the Empire of Japan. And as a result, they were tortured. They were beaten. They were stripped naked, humiliated, tortured, beaten, stripped, humiliated over and over for 600 days. But the U.S. Army came in and saved them. But that didn't save enough because when he came home, he had night terrors. He couldn't sleep. He feared sleep because when he slept, all he saw was those men torturing him, humiliated him. 
Instead of turning to God, what does he turn to? He turns to sin. He turns to alcohol. He turns for vengeance. As someone put it, he was filled with anger and anxiety and hatred. And the only solace he found was alcohol and concocting plans to return to Japan to murder those prison guards. This is the only way he felt that he was finally free of them. But the story doesn't end there. His wife forces him to you need to go to this thing. Otherwise, I'm leaving you. So what is this thing? He goes to a Billy Graham event. And what happens? He hears the gospel. And even though he has every right, we understand why he's an alcoholic. We understand why he's angry. We know, we understand why he's, he wants to seek vengeance. But what does he understand? That he recognizes his own sin, that he is living a prodigal lifestyle by his own choices, and that he deserves his wife leaving him. He deserves separation from God. So what does he do? He takes the offer. He repents and places his faith in Christ. And what happens? The night terrors, they cease. He takes his alcohol and he dumps it in the sink. And the desire for vengeance, it leaves him completely. He is a new person. And as rejoicing, he goes and becomes an evangelist, sharing the gospel with anybody because he recognizes the shocking gift, an unwarranted mercy that he gets. And God wants that same mercy for you, no matter how indulgent in your sin you are, no matter how much porn you watch or how much lying you do, how much cheating you do, how much stealing you do. He wants you to forgive. He wants to forgive you. God will exact his justice on us. But Ezekiel 18 verse 23, he doesn't take pleasure in the death of the wicked. He wants them to turn from this way and live. He wants you to live. He wants you to experience that godly repentance, that godly sorrow, the godly grief in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. But how do we do it? How do we draw near to God? How does he draw near to us? We humble ourselves. Just like the younger son, he humbled himself. Just like Louis, he humbled himself and we have to humble ourselves. And as a result, we get to rejoice, to have compassion, that we don't have to experience the consequences of our sin. So our rejoicing turns into our love for God. Our love for God grows and increases. Our love for him grows over than the career and college that you want and want to join. We start repenting from our sin. We start getting up and turning away from it. We're continually praying. We're hunger. We're, we're hungering for God's word. We want to spend more time with him. The person who's giving us this forgiveness. We have selfless love developed in us by the spirit. We start separating ourselves from the world. The world wants us to, hey, go to college, earn a job, build a house, do this. Instead, you're like, you know what, God, what do you want? What is your will in my life? What is most important to you in my life? And then all of a sudden we become more obedient to our living. Not just to God, to our parents, to our professors, to our employers, even to our politicians. And so we start living a transformed life. That's what rejoicing looks like. That's what Louis shows. He was rejoicing by living a different life. But if this is for our relationship with God, what about the relationship with the people next to you? What about the relationship with the people in this church, to the neighborhood, to the world? Go back with me to Luke 15 and go to verse 25 with me. In verse 25, it says, now his older son, the father's older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. He called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. 
And the servant said to him, the older brother, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you. I've never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he, the father said to him, his older son, son, you are always with me. And all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this, your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Jesus is imploring the Pharisees and the, and the scribes before him. Don't you realize these tax collectors, these sinners, they're coming back to the, the, to the fold. But what was wrong with the older brother? In verse 25, you're introduced to the older brother. He's working in the field. He's faithfully working. But what was the father doing? He sees his son from afar. The father was searching. The older brother is putting his head down. He, he's like, the old, my younger brother's dead to me. I'm just going to work. I want to faithfully work. He didn't leave. He wasn't searching. Like Kellen challenged us two weeks ago, and I hope you are. He wasn't searching for his lost brother. Just like his younger brother, he just wants the father's presence but doesn't want to be in the Father's presence. He wants the gifts that he can earn rather than having just enjoying the relationship that he has. And as a result, he's angry and refused to go in. And his father came out. The father searched out him. Jesus didn't just eat with sinners. He ate with Pharisees. He searched out everyone. But the son's heart was such with lack of love. It, re- it shows that he had the wrong motive for serving. He wanted a young goat. He wanted to celebrate with his friends with his obedience. He's trying to earn his relationship with his dad. And he was being self-indulgent in his own self-righteousness, saying, I can provide good things to this family. I can earn this relationship with my dad. But his self-righteousness, even though on the surface looks okay, it's equally dishonoring to the father as the son's younger son's debauchery. He thought he was worthy. And we also see that he has no love for his brother. He says, this son of yours, he's disdained for his brother. Understandably, his younger brother just took one third of the family wealth and squandered it in Las Vegas. It's understandable, but it shows that he lacked love. He lacked love because he was blind to what he had. In verse 31, son, you're always with me and all that is mine is yours. The Pharisees had all the scriptures and knowledge at their, in their hands, but they did not have a true relationship with their father, with God. We might be sitting here, we have the Bible, we have preaching in our hands, but we not, might not have a true relationship with God. And as a result, he could not understand the point of the parable. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. This is the summary of all three parables. The rejoicing of that shepherd for finding the lost sheep. The rejoicing of that woman who found that lost coin. And the coin, think of it as more of a a day's wage, like a paycheck. And the older son lacked so much love, he couldn't see the joy of his younger son, or his younger brother, being alive. So point number three, we need to respond with extreme joy when anyone repents. 
respond with extreme joy when anyone repents. Someone got it. His name is Louis Zapparini. Some of you might know that story. For those who don't, him becoming a Christian after he was tortured wasn't why he is so famous and revered. Why is he so revered by so many? Because he was not like the older brother. He received God's mercy, but he just didn't take it there. He didn't put his head down and worked. He didn't just love his wife and his daughter. He just didn't work for that uh, white picket fence. He didn't go to his church and serve it faithfully. What else did he do? He searched for his younger brother. Who were his younger brothers? Those prison guards of Japan who are now being held in prison in Japan. So he's like, you know what? I need to go to them. So in 1952, he flew to Japan, went to Sugamu prison where 800 war criminals are being held. He asked the American prison guards saying, hey, can I talk to these men, these captors of mine that tortured me? And they're like, yeah. In their own mind, they were thinking like, okay, we'll actually turn our back. If you want to get a little revenge, we'll allow it. Because that's what they thought he was going to do. So they put him on a platform similar to this, and they're in the courtyard. And so they start bringing him in. And I want Louis to describe what he did. So, quote, I, Louis, looked out and saw them coming down the aisle. And of course, I recognized each one of them vividly. I didn't even think of my reaction. What was his reaction? When he saw those men, he's like, yep, that's the one. There's another one. There's another one. There's another one. Was it anger? Remembering those times they tortured him? He's like, I can finally have vengeance. Was it fear? Did the night terrors all of a sudden come back? Thinking about the humiliation, him being stripped butt naked, beaten by these men. He sees them before in his eyes. Is that There they are. So what does he do? Quote, I didn't even think of my reaction. I jumped off the stage. I ran down and I threw my arms around them and they withdrew from me. He showed undeserving compassion to those guards. But what was his motive? He shares his motive to us. Quote, they couldn't understand the forgiveness. We went into a room and there, of course, I continued to press the issue of Christianity. His motive, he wanted to restore them. They didn't understand the forgiveness he wanted to offer to them. I don't really understand the forgiveness he wants to offer to them. Here's the men that tortured him, beat him. They deserved imprisonment. And yet now he's showing forgiveness and compassion to them. Why? Because he wants to share Christianity. But as a result, do you know what happens? This is what Louis said. As he shared Christianity, all but one made a decision for Christ. All but one made a decision for Christ because why? He showed this undeserving compassion to them. Why? Because he recognized he had undeserving compassion from God. He knew how to rejoice when the lost are saved. He knew the joy when people repented. Why? Because he went on the search. He wasn't like the older brother. He searched them out. He had the right motive. He wanted to restore people to God. And he realized what he had. He knew he didn't deserve it, but he knew and cherished that relationship he had with our God. Don't be apathetic through nine. This is a big deal. Don't be like the older brother. He didn't reach out to his younger brother. He was trying to earn a relationship with his dad. Therefore, he didn't love his father. He had the wrong motivation for his work. He didn't know a true relationship. He never knew the gospel. He was blind to what he had in front of him. And he didn't love his brother again because he refused to forgive and restore and to celebrate. 
The older brother missed the point. Louis didn't. The Pharisees missed the point. They were trying to earn a relationship with God and they couldn't see the joy of these, their fellow Jew coming back to God seeking forgiveness. They had no desire to see the outcast come back. But Louis did. And that's what we need to do. That's how we rejoice. That's how we respond with great joy. So how can we apply this? How do we not become the older brother? How do we become more like Louis? How do we seek out the lost, the people who don't believe? How about how do we seek out those people, those brothers and sisters, our fellow believers who might be wandering? Take a look around in your small group. Who's been missing for week after week? You have social most of you have social media. Who are the people that you're starting to see on social media following the wrong crowd? How do we don't how do we not be like the older brother? Firstly, we have to have the right motive. We're not trying to earn God's favor. We're not trying to earn a blessing. We're not trying to work on ourselves that we might look good. We're not good, trying to practice, practice moralism. We're not trying to be good for good's sake. We have to have the right motivation. And that's what Paul was challenging the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 1 through 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 1 through 3. Paul's trying to tell them, like, even if I had tongues of men and angels... If I had prophetic powers, if I understood all ministry, mysteries, if I had all knowledge, if I had such faith that I can move mountains, if I gave away all that I had, if I gave up my body, but if I don't have love, it is for nothing. I gain nothing. If we come to main service, if we come to third nine, we serve in Awana or kids ministry. We go up and serve the junior highs up the mountain. We suffer in the summers with the high schoolers at revival. We do, we serve the old people. We help the orphans. We help the widows. We're fighting for social justice. We're trying to help the environment. We're trying to save the whales. But if you have, do not have godly love, you gain nothing. Love. What is that love? Our motivation it needs to restore people back to God. People who don't believe. And restore those brothers and sisters who are wandering What else do we do? We go on the search. We go on the search for those lost. We go for the search for our brothers and sisters who might be going astray. Kellen covered this for the lost. Go to your classrooms. Go to your work. Go to your neighborhood. Go on the search for those lost. But what about our brothers and sisters? Paul challenged the Galatians in Galatians chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. He says that if anyone's caught in a transgression, what are we supposed to do? You who are spiritual restore them with what with a spirit of gentleness to bear one another's burdens to do what to fulfill the law of christ are we trying to restore our brothers and sisters who haven't been showing up do that tonight text them call them say hey where you been restore with gentleness don't call them out on their sin just to turn around and gossip with your friend like dude i i finally reached out to that person I got a hold of them. I called them out in their sin. Dude, it's a bad sin. This is what it is. No, are you say, hey, I need your help. We need to bring this person back into the fold. And so what else, what else can we do that the older brother didn't do? We share the gospel to the lost. We remind the gospel to our friends. So don't you remember why God, God died on the cross for you? When he rose again? Don't you remember? That all we have to have, all we have to do is place faith in Christ, that he is the only way to salvation? 
Don't you remember the compassion he showed you for your sin? You can, no temptation has overcome you. God is providing a way out. Seek that. Or just sharing to the lost the gospel that they can be free from the consequences of their sin. And what else do we do that the old, older brother didn't do? We forgive, restore, and celebrate. In second, Paul writes back to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 5 and 8. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 5 and 8. He describes, he's just trying to tell the church that someone has sinned and they're, they're disciplining him. But what to do after the key? The person is asking for forgiveness genuinely and you're disciplined him. But what do you do now? You turn to forgive and comfort him. Why? Or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. So those people that you're thinking of, the people in your small group, or the people that you know that have wandered away, or just the lost in general, you reaffirm your love for them by going after them, to restore them back to God and back into this family. And if we do that, if we decide to not be the older brother, and instead to respond with joy when anyone repents, what can third nine look like? What can third nine look like to this community, to this world? If we put on compassionate hearts, if we show kindness, humility, if we show meekness and patience, if we bear with one another, if we forgive one another, if we put on love, we'll have this unity, this love that binds everything in perfect harmony. The older brother failed in that. We, don't, we have the chance not to. If we do that, what can we do? We can let the word of God dwell in us richly. We can encourage one another, admonish one another in wisdom because we love each other. We know each other intimately. Our small group, we know these people by heart. We're we're praying for them. We're working together with them. And as a result of our love and our unity, we can sing together psalms and hymns and spiritual songs together with joy Why? Because people are being restored to God. You have been restored to God. Your friend can be restored back into this family. And we can sing songs of thankfulness to God for giving us the opportunity to, to have compassion over our sin. And if we have that unity, we will have the right motive. What is that motive? That whatever we do in word or deed, we can do any, everything. And in the name of our Lord Jesus, giving thanks to him, having the right motive. But we have to have that love. Our unity with one another, the older brother rejected, if we have that unity as fellow believers, restoring, forgiving, and celebrating when people are repenting of their sins, we can have that unity like the Father has with the Son and the Holy Spirit. That's what John 17, that's why Christ is trying to pray for us believers here and now to have that same unity. But why? To show the world his love for us. To show the world that Christ died for us. To show the world that he rose again. To show the world that he loves us. He wants to give you an opportunity to repent from the consequences, the devastating consequences of your sin. And our unity will help our evangelism as we reach the world and reach the lost. So how much joy should we have when someone who is not a Christian repents and places their faith in Christ more than the the family that sees their father coming back to them from deployment? 
How much joy should we have when we have a brother and sister who was wandering for a moment, they repent of that sin and rush back in here and celebrating their, 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 the, the compassion that God offers them. More joy that that family has than when their, when their father comes back from their deployment. Let third nine be a ministry that is joyful for the forgiveness that we did not earn. Let's be joyful tonight. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, God, just thank you for your compassion for us. Thank you for sending your son to die on our behalf, to take on the devastating consequences of our sin. Help us to recognize our sin. Help us to recognize our prodigal life. Let us confess the sins that we are indulging in, that we felt trapped by trapped in. Lord, let us rejoice in the unconditional mercy that you provide. Let's rejoice by getting up and turning away and fall, joining and just running to you. And let's also rejoice, Lord, by searching out the lost, the lost person who's never heard the gospel, who, are ne- who has never accepted the gospel. And those brothers and sisters, Lord, who are starting to wander, Lord, let us bring them back with gentleness and the hope that, Lord, that they repent and that we can have joy that they're brought back into the fold. Lord, please do not let us grow apathetic. Rather, Lord, let us be zealous to go after those who are lost. Lord, I pray these things in your name. Amen.